Welcome again to this session of Rediscovering Jesus Through Revelation. Boy, we've journeyed through 10 chapters so far in this fantastic book, and we're beginning to get into chapter 11, and, and we're hoping to uh, make our way all the way to chapter 15 in this session. We left off the last time talking about the mission that John is still on, this mission of prophesying to the tribes, or not the tribes, but the people, the nations, and the kings, um, and the, the many languages. And his prophecy is of this beautiful message that is sweet to his taste and sour to his stomach. And, and we determined that um, there's something there of that gospel message that uh, uh, John is prophesying that is beautiful to those who respond, but, but uh, uh, detrimental to those who don't. And even at some level, detrimental to those who are preaching that message as they experience persecution. And so we are journeying our way through uh, the, the uh, remainder of uh, Revelation. And uh, we're learning, guys, I think you might agree, we're learning that it's not getting any easier, is it? Well, we're definitely learning a lot as we go. And I think that's hopefully the sign of uh, good teachers, because there's always something to learn. Oh, definitely. Well, um, I know you guys would agree with me that there's not one of us here that believe that we... Uh, know everything about the book of revelation for sure and david i appreciate so much what you said because we've we've been on a journey together uh, that sometimes it's been a, a smooth journey other times it's been a little bit bumpy especially as we get into uh, chapters 12 uh, 13 14 um and as we get into the the bowls uh, as well so well without further ado let's jump right into chapter 11 where we left off and here we meet uh, the two witnesses that uh, uh, John introduces us to. Uh, where do you guys want to start with this? It might be good to begin with the fact that John is called to uh, measure the temple and the altar, because I think that's a, a significant point that uh, this precedes the two witnesses. Uh, it has meaning for both uh, God's covenant people as well as for those who are outside of, of the covenant. And we see again that that cropping up of, of 42 months. Mm. You know, there are some traditions that, that read that literally and others that see it as merely a symbolic passage of time, uh, but we know that there is some significance there. The question is, what is it? You know, with respect to the 42 months, I did read an interesting comment, uh, and I want to be careful about where I go here, but there is this concept of a second exodus that is flowing through Revelation. Mm-hmm. That is that the New Testament people of God experience what Israel redeemed from Egypt experienced. Um, and yet we are to experience it more fully. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting about these 42 months, uh, 
Greg Beal makes the observation in Numbers 33 that they had 42 different encampments Mm -hmm. and that perhaps, I'm just saying perhaps, uh, it's not coincidence that we have this number so that whether it's literal or figurative, uh, we do know that there's a correspondence between the 42 encampments of Israel during their time in the wilderness. There are 40 years in the wilderness, and it seems that there could be a correspondence as we now get into chapter 11 and having the saints protected by God. We'll see later in the following chapters we hope to cover today. That's just my observation. And what would be the significance of that, Don? The 42 encampments, if they correspond to the 42 months? Uh, well, the question is, is it literal or is it figurative pulling from that and then thus making the point that uh, God's people are going to experience this new full exodus? I think it also implies then of God's provision for his people during that time, because we know, of course, during the Exodus, uh, even though the, uh, the, the wandering, the wilderness wanderings were the result of the disobedience of the majority of God's people, God still provided for them thoroughly. Their clothes and their uh, footwear didn't wear out. Uh, they were provided with the manna. They were provided with meat. They were provided with water in the wilderness. So uh, in, in my mind, that is one of the bigger themes to keep in mind uh, of God's provision during this wild and crazy time when uh, the nations will trample the holy city for, for 42 months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a good segue into the, the two witnesses. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, some have made reference to this as being um, perhaps a prophetic uh, um, utterance in regards to the Jewish war and ultimately the destruction of the temple. And of course, those would be uh, some who would hold to an earlier date uh, of Revelation, um, looking at Revelation chapter 11 as indicating that the temple still exists. But how, how should we look at that? Um, what's, is there merit to thinking that that 42 months corresponds to a, a three-year war from 67 to 70 AD that takes place? In order to answer that question, we should probably also note the correspondence to Daniel chapter 9. Mm-hmm. So we, we see these different motifs and allusions coming forth, whether it's 42 months, 1,260 days, or a time, times, and half a time, that is three and a half years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've all been reading furiously, trying to keep pace with our discussion, and should know by now that there are several three and a half year periods uh, that could match up with some historical events, such as the one that you've mentioned, Michael. So uh, just to note, to bring Daniel in, and then in short order, we're going to need to bring Zechariah in as well uh, once we get to the next paragraph. But uh, just just showing that the scripture is so tied together and woven together uh, that it, maybe I'm not trying to, I shouldn't try to untangle what is woven together, 
but I am trying to understand it. And I feel like I'm seeing the backside of the tapestry, not the front side. Mm, well, that, that's a good way to put it, um, Don, I, because it does become a little cumbersome at, at times, especially when we're trying to figure out, you know, at what point do we take something literally? At, at what point do we take it figuratively? Um, are there places where we need to think more allegorically uh, or, or uh, in, in another way as we're trying to figure out what it is that John is communicating uh, to that first century church? And an another thing is when he's using these allusions, is he speaking of the exact same thing? Or is he speaking of something of a similar kind, or is it a brand new thing? I tend to think it's not a brand new thing uh, uh, that is totally. But um, yeah, those are big questions. Uh, Michael, What you made a reference to an earlier date and an earlier event that it could correspond to. You want to bring us in on that? Yeah, I think we've talked about this before. There are there is a line of interpretation that would look at Revelation 11 as suggesting that the temple is still existing, uh, as uh, indicated by the fact that God is asking or the angel is asking uh, um, John to measure the the temple of God. And uh, if that were the case, then that would seem to allude to the idea that this had to be prior to 70 AD for John to actually see the, the temple to measure it. Now here we're mixing uh, the, some literal ideas to this with historic ideas as well uh, to try to arrive at an interpretation. But, but that's, that's the challenge that we're facing, isn't it, in uh, a book like this? Well, there's also the challenge that um... In Ezekiel 40, the Lord calls that prophet to measure the temple as well. And um, even goes as far as to uh, measure the holy district, as it were. So we're, we're talking beyond just the, the temple itself. And if I remember correctly, the temple had been destroyed by Babylon by that time. So uh, I'm, I'm not trying to rain on your parade, Michael, in any stretch, but just to say that it's we're, we're looking back from uh, almost 2000 years removed. And it's so hard for us to have uh, definitive answers. And I know none of us is trying to come across as saying this is the definitive interpretation, uh, although I think we all feel pretty confident. Uh, in the directions we lean, there's uh, no loss for different opinions here and all sorts of different data that comes in and can change the perspective. Right, right. Yeah, no, I and I, I agree. And you're not raining on my parade at all. Okay. I think there are other other places where we can get to an earlier date uh, for the mm -hmm. book of Revelation, not just contingent here on uh, chapter 11. But you point to uh, the John's role um, as as something similar to uh, Ezekiel. It, mm -hmm. You know, this is a John has a prophetic role here. 
and uh, and in fact, it's leading to uh, two other witnesses. Um, uh, these two witnesses that will be prophesying for 1,260 days, uh, clothed mm-hmm. in sackcloth, uh, John tells us in chapter 11, verse 3. What do we make of these two witnesses? Well, I was going to ask you that question. Hey, I'm asking the questions here. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, well, there's a pattern there, but... <laughs> I was going to say when when we started, you did ask the question, well, what is that issue here? And I was thinking, well, it's the identity of the two witnesses. Mm. Uh, can we identify them? I, I know some people want to identify them with uh, Moses and Elijah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think they're coming back to life here to die again and lie in the streets for three and a half days or three days. Yeah, right. And you would think, I mean, if it were, and it's certainly a, a, a possibility that it would be uh, Moses and Elijah. In fact, I think Gordon Fee points to uh, the two witnesses as being uh, Elijah and Moses. And that wouldn't necessarily be unusual for John to make that suggestion. Uh, but you would think he would make it a little bit more directly since John has had experience with uh, Moses and Elijah, hasn't he, uh, sure. at, at Jesus's transfiguration? Go ahead, David. Okay. I, I think you're right, Michael. I think that if this were the Moses, the Elijah, that John would identify them as such. Uh, and like Don mentioned, there is... Uh, a particular interpretive school that labels them as such. However, uh, again, taking this chapter, this section within the whole of what we've read so far, again, particularly anchoring this to the seven churches and the seven letters they've each received, I think it is a more probable interpretation to say that they are uh, the church, that they are the two witnesses. Okay, so how can I feel confident in that interpretation? Well, first of all, uh, if we look at Luke chapter 9, for instance, we see Jesus sending out the 72 in teams of two, two by two. Um, uh, Equally, thinking back to words that Jesus has spoken Uh, where he's talking about giving testimony and how, you know, we study, we see that in Jewish law, a conviction where requires two witnesses, right? So Jesus says, I don't need your testimony. I have my own testimony and the testimony of the father. So there's a significance of the number two that I think transcends the need for this to be Elijah and Moses. these two witnesses are bearing testimony against the unbelievers in the world. Uh, and when I say that, I'm talking particularly about those who hold to uh, the, the world, uh, a worldview that is of the world over against the kingdom of God. So it's not 
I don't think a stretch to say that this is speaking of the church. And so for this set amount of time, whatever it is, uh, the church will be able to resist uh, whatever comes against it. Is this speaking of the church globally? Is it speaking of the church in certain locations? Because again, connecting this within the realm of our view that revelation is not linearly interpreted, but is coming back around. And so we're getting to see things from different perspectives, the same thing over and over again, just maybe a little more closely with each pass. Uh, this very well could be different places at different times mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because the church has been, has faced mm -hmm. such foes at various times in various places, just in the last 20th, uh, the 20th century, we've seen uh, the church put under uh, great stress and attack in places like Nazi Germany, uh, communist Russia, Soviet Union, communist China, uh, certainly North Korea continues, um, but none of them were able to completely stamp out the church. Another observation is that in the times of the Gospels, they also anticipated the coming of Elijah. It seems pretty clear from the Jesus' own interpretation that John was the, I'm putting air quotes, embodiment of Elijah and fulfilled that prophecy. John the Baptist, that is. Oh, what did I say? I'm sorry. You just said John. Okay, yes, John the Baptist. So um, we do know that sometimes there are those who would take it literally that it would be Moses and Elijah, but Elijah was promised before, and that wasn't literal. Uh, John came in the spirit, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah and evidently fulfilled that prophecy. And I'm sure there's someone somewhere who will certainly disagree with that. Mm. Um, but then we get into verse four. Uh, where he says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, which seems to be a direct reference to Zechariah. Uh, I believe it's chapter four and the vision of the golden lampstand. Um, mm -hmm. And this is, um, one of them is Zerubbabel. Mm -hmm. And Joshua. And Joshua. And which Joshua, of course, now I ask the question, but um, the priest. Uh, yes. Well, that's. Yes. But it seems that these may be individuals, even if they're not the literal embodiment of uh, Moses and Elijah. And I'm not disallowing that it this may be that this may stand for the church. Um, so what I'm saying is I frankly don't know who the two individuals are. Whether is it the church collectively or is it uh, are these two individuals who will have these special powers to fight the spiritual war, or or is it something else? Mm, okay. What's interesting, though, is that we, at least in the text, we never hear about them or see them using those 
abilities or powers. Right. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during them uh, in the days of their prophecy, and the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth. And of course, this is this is what gives rise to right. uh, the, the identification of these two witnesses as Elijah, who did close up the skies, and Moses, who uh, did uh, perform these miracles, uh, these plagues in uh, Egypt. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was thinking while David was sharing his uh, rationale for why this may, the identification may be the church, and I thought of the two witnesses as being uh, the saints who overcame by what? The power the of their word of God yeah. and their testimony. Right. And David, would that fit in with your interpretation? I, I think absolutely. It seems there's something fitting here for us to look at this as being the, the, the continuation of the role of the church to uh, proclaim uh, their testimony to the world. As we mentioned before, in chapter 10, John is given the, this prophetic message, message to uh, again speak um, uh, about the many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings. Uh, that they will hear uh, the, the gospel in some way, and and perhaps that's what we're seeing here, is the fulfillment of that. In fact, um, in in uh, chapter eleven, verse nine, uh, we meet the, this group once again for three and a half days. Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze upon their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And so that might be a reference back to uh, what John was to pro- prophesy, that now these two witnesses have uh, witnessed, they have uh, shared their faith, uh, and uh, as a result, to these groups, uh, the tribes, the languages, the peoples, the nations, mm-hmm. and uh, we see that it might be to no avail. And doesn't that fit in with the overall theme with the messages to the churches, the oracles to the churches in chapters two and three, um, that they were to uh, be faithful in their witness and they were to overcome and to him that conquers, I will give. Mm -hmm. It seems like we're, we have, it, it seems to fit the recapitulation idea that we've been discussing for quite some time now. Right. Absolutely. Um, There's, in a sense, the call to endure even with the the threat of death. Um, Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. This is Revelation 2, verse 10 and following. Uh, Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. Mm-hmm. So this this is uh, serious stuff. <laughs> yeah. Be faithful. Do what you're called to do. But know that you're going to get in trouble for your money. And what is the end result of their witness? Uh, I mean, they're killed, but they are raised. And again, that follows the pattern of Christ himself. But then we get to 11, 12, chapter 11, verse 12. Then they, I believe that's referring to the witnesses. 
Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Now, I belonged formerly, I identified myself with the Dispensational School of Interpretation, and I know that that would probably, from that perspective, be viewed as something called the rapture, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the snatching up, the taking away of the church. But now I think, you know, we are getting a insight or seeing the final result that the those who are redeemed, those who belong to the Lord, there's going to be a separation mm-hmm. between the sheep and the goats, and there's going to be the between the believers and the unbelievers. So in other words, I think uh, we're approaching final judgment here. Mm-hmm. But again, we're not seeing things in a linear fashion. I don't believe chapter 11 is a story or a narrative that we are to believe literally, uh, as in there were necessarily two individuals, that their bodies were in the streets for three and a half days. You know, there's a lot going on here. I'd like to get your feedback on those things. Yeah, well, no, I, I, there certainly is a lot going on here. And remember, this is in the context of the sixth angel who blew his trumpet. And, uh, and as we look at the sixth seal, um, and then as we look forward to the sixth uh, uh, bowl of wrath, uh, we, we have similar pictures. They're not exact pictures, but they seem to be, be uh, building upon one another, amplifying uh, one another, or, or at least providing us a little bit more uh, understanding. And I think mm-hmm. where, where we agreed is that through this tumultuous time, the church is still here uh, witnessing on earth and uh, and yet there's still persecution that's going to happen. Uh, right. The church is not going to be immune from these times. And that's certainly what we see in, in chapter 11. Um, and this is the, I think this could be pointing to what the angel told John. You know, this is going to be sweet to your taste and bitter to your stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, you will rejoice in the proclamation of this good news, but you also are going to suffer uh, from uh, for the proclamation of this good news. That reminds me of Paul's words, and I I don't have it right in front of me, but I think it's Ephesians. Um, but somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> that, <laughs> To those who are perishing, we are the the stench of death. But to those who are coming alive in Christ, uh, we're an incredible perfume. Second Corinthians four. Second Corinthians four. Thank you. Well, I'm glad I knew it was Paul. <laughs> well, he wrote he wrote Second Corinthians from Ephesus, so you're you're kind of right there. There you go. That must have been right at the the front <laughs> of my mind. Um, you know, so I think the gospel goes out when we uh, both share it and live faithfully, right? But to those who are destined for destruction, it is a word of judgment mm-hmm. because it just brings their sin into relief. But for those 
whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it is a word of life. So to those who receive it as such, it will be sweet as honey. To those who, for whom it is an offense, uh, it will be bitter. And of course, that bitterness will be taken out on God's church. Mm-hmm. I also, um, you know, in terms of all the the things we see going on in this chapter, um, I want to, if we can, I, I think we should differentiate between an allegorical interpretation on one hand and the acknowledgement of a lot of different spiritual imagery on the other. Yes. Um, the difference I see is that to allegoricalize everything we are trying to give every little detail a particular meaning that helps our interpretation work itself out. Whereas in seeing and acknowledging spiritual imagery here, we're acknowledging that uh, the Holy Spirit is both helping John to make sense of what he's seeing, because not all of it would necessarily make sense to him, I, I don't think, just from what I, I read, but also using images from the Old Testament, as we talked about earlier, uh, to help him, to, to give him a template, as it were, for understanding uh, both the importance of what he's seeing, but making sense of it. Appreciate that clarification because I had that sense. Maybe I did use the word allegory and I wanted to pull that back. So I appreciate that clarification. I would also like to do a self-correction. David, that reference is 2 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 2, not chapter 4. So there's an auto-correction there on my There we go. Um, But I, I wanted to introduce something, and this is actually, Michael, something you brought to our attention previously in the theme of Christus Victor, and that is Christ is the victorious one. And what we have here, uh, I would say with these two witnesses, is that that is manifest in them. We are told that Uh, we will have the victory, but that victory may not come in physical overcoming. We know it may actually come through martyrdom, but, you know, we're to fear him uh, who can, uh, what, not only destroy the body, but also the one who can destroy the soul. Uh, Here we have the victory, spiritually speaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and this is a theme we're not seeing for the first time, but we may have mentioned it for the first time. And I want to give credit to Michael for drawing that to our attention. And then if I could go back and just refer to 1113, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a 10th of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed with the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. It's the sort of language that we've been hearing all along, earthquakes and thunders and things like that that precede and signal the final and end time uh, judgment, if you will. That is the, the, sum, the, uh, the summing up of all things. Mm-hmm. And yet, as John is wont to do, he brings us to that precipice and then draws us back. And the, all the natural disaster type stuff that we read there that you just pointed us to, Don, 
it keeps getting worse with each septet. Uh huh. Which leads me to think, you know, we're we're seeing the same sort of thing again, perhaps from a different angle, but maybe we're moving even closer, as it were. Mm -hmm. We're seeing just how devastating this is, and you know the the language in verse 13 may well be allegorical or allegorical in the sense that it isn't just natural disasters. This is God's judgment coming upon uh, the world. It, it is the recapitulation of heaven and earth. Or figurative. Here. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's significant. I, I think too. Um, I, I mean, I was struck by the numbers 7,000. I mean, we think of 7,000 people today uh, in a city that's large and that doesn't seem like a lot, but, uh, or maybe it does seem like a lot, but um, when we consider, for example, at this time period, Jerusalem was a population of 10,000, maybe 12,000 people. Mm -hmm. um, Ephesus had a population of 51,000. And boy, you take 7,000 people out of population sizes like that, then that's significant. Um, and so whatever it is figuratively happening here, it is, uh, it, it is significant. Well, we might even say it's cataclysmic. Yeah. Right? Well, they look at the response. I mean, after those who have died, the rest were terrified. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. Um, and, and so, so, yeah, there's there's a significant event that has occurred. And we've seen that before. This is not the first time we've seen that. So I think that verifies our approach that there's a recapitulation and intensification of these end time events. I can't help but draw our attention to one of the key themes that continues to run through here, and that is worship or doxology. Once again, uh, contrasted with uh, false worship in at the end of chapter 9, where they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. But here in chapter 11, in verse 1, it begins with uh, measuring the temple of God in the altar and those who worship there. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I'm not sure that this is literal. I do believe it's figurative. Um, and then closing out with 11.16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. So whether this is judgment for some and trial and tribulation for others, uh, we see them getting to the point where worship is a central focus uh, where in 17, they say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And uh, we would probably from the Psalms associate that with uh, the resurrection. Well, before we move into that, uh, the seventh trumpet, there's one other figure that we haven't addressed, and that is this beast from the bottomless pit. Mm. Boy, if we don't know who the two witnesses are, can we say with any certainty who this beast is? As the church lady used to say, could it be Satan? <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, 
it probably isn't Satan, not the beast. Yeah, so with it, probably a reference to Revelation 17, 8. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you say? Well, since we're jumping far ahead, yes, I would. <laughs> well, I'm, John I'm a little behind here. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we're in Revelation 11, 7. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. That sounds beastly. That does sound beastly. And it's not going to be the only beast we meet. meet. We'll meet uh, a couple others here. Uh, yeah. Is, is this a different beast from the beast in chapter 12? And I've did you take us to 17 what? 17.8. Yeah, this is another beast that is about to rise from the bottomless pit and mm-hmm. go to destruction. Um, and perhaps we need to leave it there until we get to chapter 17 to, uh, <laughs> to make more of a determination. But, but whoever this is, this is an entity that is uh, distinctly in opposition to the witness of uh, these prophets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, uh, not just distinctly, but forcefully. Um, so much so that they um, they lose their lives. Oh, Michael, just knowing you a little bit, I wonder if this is not a teaser for something that's coming. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to tease anybody. I, I don't know. I mean, that's part of the question is, is that. Yeah, is, I, is I understand that, it's a real question. I, I do. But. I, I just feel that you have a little bit more that you could say on it right now. Yeah, you know what? I honestly don't because I'm not mm-hmm. um, I'm not at 17 yet, and <laughs> I think 17 is going to be one of those uh, other recapitulation uh, scenarios that we've been looking at that will get a little bit more illumination on who this uh, figure is. Uh huh. Okay. Thanks. But I don't think I will, will say this. I, I I don't think, at least at this point, I don't think it's uh, the same beast that we meet in chapter twelve, uh, nor uh, the uh, I'm sorry, the same beast we meet in chapter thirteen, uh, or the second beast in chapter thirteen. Right. Um, the first beast is from the sea in chapter twelve. The first beast is from the sea. The second beast is from the earth. But yeah. this one comes from the bottomless pit. Yeah. Is this perhaps the dragon or some something, someone else? That's a good question. That is a good question. And we will uh, get there. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. Good. Well, Don, you brought up, uh, the, again, this theme that continues to recur, the worship, uh, both the false worship as well as the true worship. Um, of God. And we see, as you mentioned in 13, that there were those who were terrified and they gave glory to God in, in heaven, uh, yeah. the God of heaven. We'll meet this again, I, th- I think, of course, in chapter 14, uh, where the, the, the uh, uh, gospel, when it, the eternal gospel is being proclaimed, that it's being proclaimed in similar language to give glory to God. Um, and then we get to the seventh trumpet. This is the, we, we're closing the second woe 
John says, behold, the third woe is soon to come. And uh, perhaps the third woe is this seventh trumpet. 8.13, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three other angels are about to blow. So that's 8.13 that seems to very clearly indicate that each one of the woes is uh, correspond to the blast of the next three trumpets. So although we have 9.12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And then 11.14, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. I would say, and I think this, uh, well, I, w- I will say that I think the the third woe is the uh, next and final trumpet, number seven. Okay. And what would you look at as you look at the seventh trumpet? What is the woeful part of that trumpet blast? I think it is what we read in verse 19. Mm. The temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder and earthquake and severe hail. And I would back it up a verse and perhaps this whole poetic section, but the nations raged. Of course, that reminds us of Psalm 8. But your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for mm-hmm. rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. I mean, that's, again, it sounds like we're coming right to the brink of final judgment. Mm -hmm. Yet, uh, That doesn't happen in chapter 12, one. Right. So I think that's the woe. That's that's a huge woe. Good. All right. Well, we've gotten through the seventh trumpet, and we're moving onward to, to chapter 12. Uh, Let me just close this out for this session, and then we'll pick up with chapter 12 in the next. But uh, we want to encourage you as you're participating with us in the study of Revelation. We want to hear from you. Uh, You can see that we wrestle through uh, trying to understand what this really marvelous uh, book is telling us and what we're learning about it. And really, too, what we're learning about Jesus. So uh, we invite you to to interact with us on the discussion forum. You can email us as well. But uh, we're grateful for uh, your participation with us. So until the next session, uh, we have been rediscovering Jesus through Revelation. Revelation.